time, we're down in verse number 4. Before we actually get into verse number 4 and start talking about what we are dealing with tonight, we want to go back, and because we have new faces in here tonight, we want to go ahead and read through verses 1 through 3 and sort of catch up on where we are so that we'll understand what's going on in verse number 4. The Bible says simply, verse number 1, the book of Jude, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. The Jude who writes this book is the half-brother, if you will, of Jesus. He doesn't claim that. He just simply calls himself the brother of James, James being one of the other half-brothers. And so um, he Sort of, sort of shows his humility, I guess you might say, in regard to Jesus. When he was young, when uh, uh, before Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he was an unbeliever, along with James, but later both became great workers in the Lord's church. Uh, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about a common salvation, Jude said, I intended to write something to you. There was a topic, a subject that I wanted to address. He says, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Even though he had that one uh, subject that he wanted to deal with, and we talked about that in pretty great detail as we were studying through it, uh, he found it necessary, it was uh, more important for him to address a different topic, uh, and that has to do with some of the false teachers who had come in, and so he is writing about them and instructing the people to whom he's writing about those who would teach falsely. Let's go to verse number four. We've spent quite a bit of time in verse number four, but there are a couple of things that we need to deal with. Uh, Just again to review a little bit, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The people that he's talking about, he said they had long ago been designated. Now, there are those in, in many religious bodies who say, well... You know, somewhere back in eternity, God picked these men out and said, these are going to be the ones who will go in and be false teachers. Well, that's not what James or Jude rather is writing about. Long before they had been designated to receive condemnation because they came teaching falsely. Now, that's seen all the way through the Old Testament, but we gave a couple of examples from the Old Testament uh, to read, Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 through 22. Those who would teach false uh, doctrine, if you will, in the Old Testament, they were condemned to death. And so condemnation was to be upon those who were bringing these falsehoods into the Lord's church. Okay? Now, what does he call these people? Look at midway of the verse. He calls them ungodly people. Uh, That's where we need to begin tonight. That's the term that that we left off on last time. What does he mean by ungodly people? Well, let me just say to begin with, the term that's translated ungodly, those two words, ungodly people, uh, it's one one, uh, word in the original language. And, And... the word that's used is a negative form of the word sebamai. Now, 
You don't know what the word sebamai means, I know. It's a Greek word, but it means to revere, to adore, or devout, okay? And yet, the word that we have here is a negative form of that word. And so, the opposite of the idea of revering or adoring or being devout, the opposite are what these people are. The opposite of that. So what are they? Well, these, these men are irreverent. These teachers, these men are impious. They, they are wicked. Okay? Let's look at a few uses of this term. And sometimes when we see the usage of the term... In Scripture, we let the Bible be its own best commentary. It helps us to understand a little more deeply what is being said. Okay, So let's look at two or three passages from, from the New Testament that uses this term that's translated here, ungodly people. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2 at verse number 5. Now while you're turning there, the men hopefully will remember that the book of Second Peter is a, a twin sister, if you will, to the book of Jude. Uh, they, they have much the same material. Second Peter, of course, is a little bit longer, uh, but they address many of the same things. Okay? But when we turn to Second Peter chapter 2 at verse number 5, we find our word, and we find not only the word that's used, but we also find a time frame, a, a group of people that we will already have studied about in relation to this word, okay? Somebody read Second Peter 2, verse number 5 out loud for us. Anybody? Jump in there and go. And did not spare the ancient world, but save Noah, one of the eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in all right, on the world of the ungodly. Who's described as the ungodly? Those people who were alive in Noah's day. How many, how many people were saved during that day when Noah built the ark? Eight people. Uh, why were there not more who were saved? They were ungodly and they refused even to listen to Noah, the preacher of righteousness, the Bible calls him. They refused even to listen to him. The only ones he could convince was his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Eight people. What about the rest of the people on the face of the earth at that time? Well, we remember what is said in the book of Genesis chapter 6 at verse number 5, don't we? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that what? What's the rest of that verse? Genesis 6 verse 5. And every intention, English standard, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, that's, a, that's an Old Testament description of what God considers to be ungodly, irreverent. It was bad enough in Noah's day that what happened? The folks, the people who were alive at that time were so ungodly, what happened? God destroyed the world. And the only ones who were saved were Noah, the, the ones that we've already mentioned, and the animals that God caused to be on the ark. That's what ungodliness is. 
That's the kind of people that we're dealing with here in the book of Jude. That's the word that's used. You see that same word, ungodly, is used by inspiration in the book of 2 Peter chapter 2 at verse number 5. But we go back into the Old Testament and we read a description. We know what it was about. We know what they were like. And so whatever it was, the kinds of actions that these people in, in Noah's day, whatever kinds of actions they were participating in, so it was that these false teachers in the day that Jude is writing, they're trying to bring that into the church. They're trying to convince God's people to be that way. That's pretty bad, isn't it? Pretty bad. Well, not just there do we find this word used, but let's look at some other instances in the New Testament where it's used. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. We, we, we just read verse number 5. Look at verse number 6. Okay? Uh, Brother Eddie, you still got that passage there? Uh-oh, here's our word again. Same word that's used in the book of Jude. But this time it's used not in regard to the people in the day of Noah, but it's used in regard to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, now what kind of people were the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? Go to the book of Genesis chapter 13, verse 13. Genesis 13, verse 13. And the first one to get there, read it out loud for us. Genesis 13, 13. The men of Sodom were wicked. Well, he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, let me, let me keep going. They were sinners against the Lord. But is that all he says about them? No, he doesn't stop there either, does he? They're wicked and they are great sinners against the Lord. Now, now how bad were they? Well, Genesis chapter 19, verses 24 and 25 say this. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Now, now we know something about the, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Matter of fact, we're going to come back to that in just a little while. We're going to deal with it again. But these people are called by God in the book of 2 Peter chapter 2 at verse 6 by the same term that he uses against the false teachers that are coming into the church that Jude is writing about. You see, Jude said, I wanted to write about the coming salvation, but I found it necessary to write because there's some false teachers who are coming in. And he describes these false teachers as wicked as ungodly. Well, what does he mean when he says ungodly? Well, we could say, well, they're not like God. 
But that doesn't do that doesn't do justice to what the Bible is teaching us here. It, it, it is something horrendous for someone to come in and teach false doctrine. That's a point that we need to we need to understand. We need to get across. Well, what else? Is there any other places? Well, yeah, there's several, but let's go to the book of Romans chapter 5 at verse 6. And I throw this one in just to, to emphasize the goodness of God. Okay? Now we know what did God do to the people in the day of Noah? He destroyed them with a flood. What did He do to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? He destroyed them with fire. But somebody read... Romans chapter 5 at verse 6. Uh-oh, there's our word again. Who did Christ die for? The irreverent? Men like... Go ahead. Wicked. Wicked, uh-huh. It's the same word. It's Asibia, which is used in, uh, uh, in uh, uh, Jude. What kind of people did he die for? He died for people like were alive when Noah was on the earth. He died for people who were alive in Sodom and Gomorrah. He died for you and he died for me. No matter how wicked, we'll just use that word, how ungodly we may have been in our life. He died for the ungodly. Now, let's go back to Jude. Certain people crept in unnoticed. Uh, by the way, that word crept in is, is almost as if they came in the side door and sat down unnoticed, is the way one writer put it. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people. Ungodly people. These people have infiltrated the church ungodly people. Now because this was their character, they didn't hesitate to disobey God themselves, nor to tell others and teach others to turn away from God. And mind you, they're not trying to draw them out of the church. They're trying to bring it into it, into the church. So they misrepresent God. Now how did their character match up with Noah's day and Sodom's day? Sodom and Gomorrah? Wow. Think how tragic, how terrible it is for anyone to come in and bring at least this kind of false doctrine into the Lord's church. Okay? But he's not finished with them. Jude says that they are ungodly people. But he says they do something too. Now what is it they do? They pervert the grace of our Lord or our God. Let's stop and talk about that part first. They pervert the grace of our God. If you had to define pervert, how would you define it? How would you define that word? They pervert the grace of our God. How would you define the word pervert? To change. To change. Matter of fact, the word that's used here 
the, the definition of the word is to transfer, to transport, to exchange. That's, what it, that's the definition of the word. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 at verse number 12. Hebrews chapter 7 at verse number 12. The word is used, same word is used, but it's not used in a bad way in Hebrews chapter 7 at verse 12. It's used in a, in, in a way that God had intended for it to be used. Somebody got Hebrews 7, 12? All right. The first change, the word change, when there is a change in the priesthood. That's the same word translated pervert. Okay. If you just talk to the average Jew and you ask them who is supposed to be the priests, what, which tribe were they to come from, what was the average Jew going to tell you? Had to come from the tribe of Levi. What if they had someone who wanted to be a Jew who wasn't of the tribe of Levi? Well, they're perverting the Old Testament law. Wait a minute. God is not perverting the law. God's going to change the law. And because he's going to change the law, it was his law to begin with. And because he's going to change the law, what does he have to do? Also, change the priesthood. And so it's simply used, translated here, with the word change. But there's another interesting place where the word is used. And a place where we probably wouldn't even begin to think about it. Turn in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 at verse number 5. Hebrews 11, 5. Same word is used. This time it talks about Enoch. I like to talk about Enoch, but not this Enoch, as much as I like another Enoch, okay? But I do like this Enoch, and I talk about him too, okay? But what about Enoch? Taken up. Taken up. Before he was taken. Two times that word, same word translated preferred in verse 4 of Jude is used, but it's used by taken up. What happened to Enoch? Yeah, he was just used, just used the same easy word that we saw in Hebrews chapter 7. He was changed, wasn't he? He was changed. He was taken up. He was taken to heaven, but can flesh and blood inherit the kingdom? Can it go to heaven? No. It had to be changed. What happened to Jesus when he ascended back to heaven? That body that he had had to be changed. What's going to happen to those who are alive and remain at the coming of Christ? They're going to be changed. Okay? And so sometimes the word is used in a bad way. Sometimes it's used in a good way. But it literally means the idea is to transfer, transport, exchange, or change. And it can be, you know, in, when it's used in the bad way, it means to change, to pervert. Now what were they changing? What were they changing? Or what were they perverting? The grace of our God. 
Is it possible? Let me just ask you this question tonight. Is it possible to pervert the grace of God? Is it possible to do that? Well, if it, if it were not possible, then Jude should have just continued writing about the common salvation, right? Is it possible today for people to pervert the grace of God? With their teaching, with their doctrine. And so, before we ever go any farther in seeing how they were perverting the grace of God, at this point, we need to understand it's possible to pervert, to change the grace of God to something that God never intended for it to be. How can people pervert the grace of God today? Now, we'll go on, we'll talk about what's in Jude, but how can we do it? Well, one way we can do it is to say that a person is saved by grace alone. Grace alone. When the Bible is so very clear in other places that we're saved by grace through faith. Grace is God's part, faith is man's part. And so, you know, those who would say that, well, we're saved by grace alone, there's nothing Watch this. There's nothing that we can do in order to obtain because we're saved by grace. There's nothing that we have to do. Well, why can't I just live the way I want to? Well, if there's nothing I can do aside from the grace of God, and of course there are other things that, that men like John Calvin had t- began to teach and others have taken up, Really, there's nothing that I should do because I was long ago either picked out to be saved or picked out to be lost and there's nothing I can do, so I might as well live live the way I want to. What's different from that than uh, what's different in that from what these people were teaching, as we'll see in just a minute? They pervert the grace of God, okay? But into what were they perverting the grace of God? In the first century, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Sensuality. Word used for sensuality there means licentiousness, uh, filthy, lasciviousness, wantonness. That's the definition that I copied for the word translated licentiousness or translated sensuality. What is meant by that, by that word? Again, and as we say from time to time, the very best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And so again, let's go back to the twin sister book of Second Peter chapter 2. Look at verse number 7. Second Peter 2 verse 7. That's where our... Term is used again. But at the same time, God rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a good man who was sick of all the immorality and wickedness around him. All right. Uh, immorality and wickedness. Somebody have a different translation? English Standard says what? Rescued righteous Lot. 
who, who was, uh, uh, was distressed by the sensual conduct. The sensual conduct of the wicked. Where did God rescue righteous Lot from? Where did he rescue him from? What was Lot distressed over? The sensual conduct, which was how bad? What did the two angels, the two men as they're called, but they're identified as angels. What did the men of the city of Sodom want to do to the two men? Rape them. And what did they do? They came to Lot's house and what did they do? Knocked on the door. Send them out. What did, what did righteous Lot do? You may say, well, how's he righteous when you think about what he does? He goes outside and he... he begs them, don't hurt these men, and says what? I got two daughters inside. Let me just send it. Uh-uh. Send the men out. Send the men out. How bad? How bad was it in Sodom? So bad that the two angels reached out the door and pulled Lot back in the house to keep the people from harming him. And what did they do? You see... The Bible is so picturesque. What did these two angels do to the men who were outside? Blinded them. And so what did these men do? They went home. You remember? English Standard says they wore themselves out trying to find the doorknob. That's how bad it was in the day of Sodom. But what does the Bible say about their conduct? It was sensual conduct. What are these people trying to bring into the Lord's church? They're perverting the grace of God into sensuality. They're trying to excuse anything. It's the anything and everything idea goes in the house of God. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2 again, verses 18 and 19. 2 Peter 2, verses 18 and 19. How were they enticing people? By sensual, there's our word again, by sensual passions of the flesh. And who were they working on, by the way? Who, are the, who, who did these false teachers start with? Who was their target? Peter identifies them here. Those who are barely escaping, they started with the weakest members, like lions out in the 
you know, on a hunt, who do they go for? They go for the weakest. These men were going for the weakest. What were they promising them? Well, you can do anything you want to. You can live any way you want to. By the way, what had the, we'll just put it in terms, the religious world of the day been used to? By religious world, I mean pagans. What had they been used to? All kinds of fleshly worship. And now they're trying to turn God's church into one of those old false religions. You can do anything you want to. In doing so, what were they perverting? The grace of... What were they saying? God's grace allows you freedom. Notice Second uh, Peter, he talks about they promised them freedom. God's grace, God's so good that... God allows you to just do whatever you want to do. No matter how, how bad it is, you just do whatever you want to do. They were perverting the grace of God. Was this a problem in the first century? Not just to the people to whom Jude is writing, but in other places? How about Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2? What did Paul have to write about? Talking to the Christians at Rome. What did he say there in Romans 6 verses 1 and 2? Somebody have it for us? What, did, what were some of those who were influencing the people at Rome? What were they saying? Something about the grace of God. And it's pretty much evidently the same thing that Jude is having to write against as well. You just go ahead and do it. God's grace is going to cover it. Doesn't make any difference what it is. Paul said, are, are we to continue in, in sin, do whatever we want to? And let God's grace cover it? How did he respond to that? Well, depending upon which translation you're reading from, English Standard says, by no means. Some translations say, absolutely not. And the King James says what? God forbid. God forbid. No. That's not the way we live. And yet some in the day of Jude evidently are doing that. And so they're perverting the grace of God into sensuality. Now, let's bring that into the 21st century. Let's make it live today. One of the most popular, popular, I'll just call it doctrines, of our day in the world is this. Don't judge me because I, and then you fill in the blank. Don't judge me. Don't judge my lifestyle. Don't judge me. Don't tell me I'm wrong. Do you know what a Christian who pulls the don't judge me because I card is doing today? 
exactly the same thing that the people were doing in Jude's day. Don't tell me sin is wrong. God's going to accept sin because He is the God of grace. Make any difference what I do. You see, what's old is new, and what's new is old. We're right back where we started from. Really no different. And yet Jude says, I needed, I was going to write about the common salvation, but I had to write about this. I had to write about it. It's necessary for me to write about this. They, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and then there's something else that they do as well. What else? Last part of the verse. And deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. If I ask you tonight to define the word deny, what is the definition that you would give? I dare say that a lot of people would think about the word deny and, and, and we'd think about our, our, our kids when we ask them, you know, did you do whatever it was they did wrong? And what did they do? Oh, I, it wasn't me. It was, it was the brother or the sister or whatever, you know. It, it wasn't me. That's a lot of times what we think about when we think about the word deny, that we say something. You know, we say this is not. The word deny is stronger than that. It means to contradict, to disavow, to reject. Let me give you two passages where it's used. Matthew chapter, or rather Acts chapter 7 at verse 35. Stephen is talking to the Jews who would eventually stone him to death. And he's telling them, he's recounting history. He's talking about the history of the, uh, of the Jewish nation, the Hebrews. And in Acts chapter 7 at verse 35, he says, This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. The word rejected is our word. What did they do? Well, it doesn't sound as bad just to say deny, does it? To say they reject is a little stronger. They rejected Moses. Uh, let me give you another one. Hebrews chapter 11 at verse 24. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, did what? Had to do with Pharaoh's daughter. What did he do? He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Our word is refused. English Standard Translation. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 33, Whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. The one who rejects him, he will reject before his Father. We could go on. Uh, 
Matthew 27, 26, verse 72, uh, Peter denied with an oath. Titus chapter 2, verse 12, though, says that we are to renounce ungodliness and worldly lust. Rather than renouncing those things, these people were embracing those things. And so they were perverting the gospel, perverting the grace of God. All right, our time is up. We'll pick up there. Uh, We'll talk about the word Master and Lord next time and uh, go from there.